IBS podcast. I'm your host, Johanna Rubby. The podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnoses. Each month, we feature a new episode with guest experts in the field of motility and neurogastroenterology who share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversation about their impact on a patient's quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this podcast is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Tuesday night IBS podcast session. Uh, this month of February, we're so pleased to be joined by our guest expert, who is Dr. Lynn Chang. Dr. Chang and I um, work together through the Rome Foundation, and I'm just so excited to have her because her work really aligns with a lot of my own personal research interests, and so it's going to be a really fun conversation today. So in case you don't know um, Dr. Chang, she is pretty impressive. Um, she is the Vice Chief of um, the Division of Digestive Diseases, Department of Medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. And she's the co-director of the Oppenheimer Center of Neurobiology of Stress and Resilience, and also the fellowship director there um, within the GI division. So she does a lot of training and a lot of mentoring, um, a lot of teaching. Uh, she um, Her interests actually focus on uh, gastrointestinal disorders such as irritable bowel syndrome, chronic constipation, and functional dyspepsia. She's a funded NIH investigator studying brain-gut interactions, underlying IBS, and in specific, her research is fo focused on the path pathophysiology of IBS related to stress, early life adversity, sex differences, genetic and epigenetic factors, and the gut microbiome, and of course, treatments for IBS. So all of these topics we're going to be discussing with her today. Hi, Dr. Chang. How are you? Welcome. Uh, thank you for having me, Johanna. This is a, a real pleasure and an honor. So I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Well, the honor is ours, of course. Um, so I mean, you have such an amazing background and history of research and treating patients with these conditions. And I'm, I'm just curious um, how you got started in this. What, what was it that drew you to gastroenterology in the first place and in particular treating IBS? Because as we know, not a lot of uh, physicians want to kind of specialize in that disorder. So what was it about it that drew you to it? Yeah, that's a good question. I really have a, a different background. You know, as usual, uh, a, a gastroenterologist uh, may have wanted to be a surgeon at the very beginning. And I, I went into medicine because I like, you know, more of the management of chronic illnesses. But I knew I wanted to specialize and I was thinking about different subspecialties. But I, I enjoyed gastroenterology because it made sense to me, the pathophysiology. Um, I didn't really know if I was going to like procedures so much, but I, but I did. But I, I, I'm a type of person that I like to get to know things very well. It's more in-depth, uh, more than breath. Uh, and so in GI, I did start working with a motility expert. Um, and so that's where I kind of got introduced into GI motility disorders. But I really did a lot of general GI at the beginning. 
but I really knew that I wanted to do something more. And I had the opportunity to work with Emron Meyer at UCLA and who was studying brain gut uh, interactions and IBS for a long time. So that's really how I got introduced into it. But I really love the the biopsychosocial aspect. I like the physiology and the the, the brain gut axis. And I had to really train myself to really understand functional neuroanatomy way in the beginning. Uh, and then I, you know, met Doug Drossman later on, and he really taught me how to take care of patients and really understand how the, about the biopsychosocial model. But I, I realized that I like multiple pieces of inter, uh, information and you integrate it. And I like really the whole person approach to medicine. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So, so you started treating patients with motility conditions, particularly IBS. When did you start to maybe think, hmm, there might be some differences between gender and how symptoms are expressing in these patients? Maybe I should start doing some research into that. When did that all kind of come come about? Yeah, actually, it was because uh, we had applied for our, our center, our, our group had applied for a grant at NIH through the Office of Research of Women's Health, and they were interested in looking at sex differences. And we knew that there was sex and gender differences in IBS. It was really more of a female predominant disorder. So we right. applied for that grant, and that's why we started studying it. And we are probably now in our 18th year or so. So wow. we've been actually studying sex differences for many years. And a lot of people weren't studying sex differences, but um, yeah. it was particular uh, our research focus and an area that we thought was very important. Yeah. Yeah. So in 2001, you published, which is so crazy because that just seems like so long ago, right? But 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you started looking at why women were more likely than men to report irritable bowel syndrome symptoms, as well as other things like chronic visceral pain, muscular skeletal pain, those sorts of things. And you really were looking at a hypothesis that female IBS patients were different than their male counterparts in symptoms related to the viscera and uh, musculoskeletal systems, but it was all related to the menstrual cycle and sex hormones. And I'm curious, what, what did that data discover? What did that unve unveil to you? And so I actually, my first grant was about IBS with the overlap of fibromyalgia which is also another female predominant disorder. Right. So we recognize that it wasn't just about having increased sensitivity in the viscera or the GI tract, but also in the musculoskeletal system. So it's really much more of a, um, you know, a broader visceral somatic type of right. entity and that there was shared pathophysiologic mechanisms. But we found that now these surveys, the one that you're referring to is a survey. And so right. we, we have these large surveys and a lot of times they were hypothesis generating. We were trying to you know, understand maybe factors that we didn't understand, but we, we recognize that women and men report symptoms differently and yeah. a different severity and women will report more GI symptoms and upper and lower gut. They tend to have more constipation. I think that's well known. Um, you know, there, there wasn't as much difference in quality of life, but uh, women definitely will report more musculoskeletal. And, you know, it, just like we see fibromyalgia, it's, it's much more common right. in women. Right. So women are predisposed to these you, people use different terms. It could be, you know, somatic pain disorders or somatic syndromes or chronic pain disorders. But there is evidence that women have a lower uh, pain tolerance to men um, or greater sensitivity um, to men in, in many previous studies. So 
So how many, I mean, we don't need an exact number, but you said more women with IBS also report things like fibromyalgia or other somatic pain syndromes. Is that pretty, is that a pretty common coexisting um, trend that you see that if a woman has IBS, she's also probably going to report other pain syndromes or other like chronic migraine is a big one that I see a lot for women that have IBS. Is that pretty common then for most female patients with IBS? I think it's more common if they have more severe symptoms. Okay. As the severity increases, you see more comorbidity and that's men and women. Okay. Um, So the, we, there's studies that have looked at just symptoms, like say headaches, um, you know, pelvic pain or musculoskeletal pain and other studies actually look at diagnostic criteria. Um, I have, we're, we're going to review the literature partly do this working team on comorbidity, but in the past, it's been like, if you're going to use fibromyalgia as an example, if you use diagnostic criteria and you look at a group of IBS patients, 30% will meet criteria for fibromyalgia. You could also do the opposite. You could look at fibromyalgia, what percentage meets criteria for GI symptoms. What I found is in doing research in fibromyalgia and IBS, that IBS, you could find patients with just IBS. And then you can find patients that have comorbidities and it, they tend to be more severe symptoms. Right. In the fibromyalgia population, it was not that easy to find fibromyalgia only. Really? Yet a lot of them had comorbidities because mm-hmm. I, I feel that it was, you know, Bruce Nalaboff used this analogy that I have never forgotten, but he always talked about like a tuning dial, like on a radio. Mm-hmm. So if you lower it, you can find IBS patients, IBS only patients, but as you start moving the dial more and more, you see patients that have more of these comorbidities and uh, like fibromyalgia is over there and they tend to have more um, coexistent conditions um, because it is, it can be pretty debilitating. Um, So that's basically what I found. So it's a range that you see. So do you think that there's enough evidence now that there's a true physiologic component based on gender differences in terms of gastrointestinal transit time or visceral sensitivities, maybe even pain processing um, and specific effects of estrogen and progesterone on gut function? Is there enough evidence now for that? Yeah, there's, there's that? animal data, uh, which... Okay. Of course, sometimes it's harder to translate to humans because their, their cycling is like three days and a woman is, you know, a month and sometimes it's, it's hard, but, but there's definitely evidence of physiologic differences between men and women, but I do think it's more complicated than that. Uh, So, but, but studies with ambulatory um, monitoring that Satish Rao did in the colon and other transit studies, women, just healthy women could have. Um, the de- uh, uh, slower transit time than men. Um, if you add on the disease population, then you could see more differences. But so when you study uh, sex differences and gender differences, you have to look at, is this just a sex and gender difference in general? So you have to study mm. the healthy population because maybe the finding you're seeing is just really the difference in males, females, right. uh, men and women. And, or is it really a disease difference? And is there an interaction? So is it that IBS women are different than healthy men and IBS men, but there's an interaction between sex and the disease rather than just looking at each. So that's, that's a little bit of the challenge of looking at sex differences. Are you going to look at IBS women versus healthy women, IBS men versus healthy men? Are you going to look at IBS women versus IBS men? 
Or are you going to look right. at an interaction of the two? So those are things right. to keep in mind. Uh, but, but I was thinking about just showing you one difference that, that like, if you look at the brain imaging studies and looking at sex differences, and what's interesting is that men and women may respond differently to whatever task you're given, and they may respond differently. So some of the findings that have been done by a lot of my colleagues at UCLA is some of the older studies uh, is a task where it's not really a task, but it 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 causes them to to respond to something. But it's balloon right. distension. So you put a right. balloon in the rectum or the sigmoid colon, inflate it, and measure the brain response. Mm-hmm. And if if you do that in women and men with IBS, women with IBS will have um, more activation in these emotional arousal or sensory processing areas than men. Now, if you give them an emotional recognition task, okay, and that's looking at neutral faces, angry faces, happy faces, men with IBS will respond more with activation of these emotional arousal and networks more than women. So it's, so what's interesting about that is maybe women consider a stimulus in the pelvic region more salient salient to them, right? Because they get, have menses, uh, pregnancy where men, if they're responding to an adversary, you know, that might get them to respond more. That's more salient to them. So maybe some of the differences, you know, were really evolutionary, you know, that that we have all these years. It's different just thinking about the modern situation where there's more equality, uh, but but you know we're we're really hardwired for many years of evolution of what we've had to experience for survival. Yeah. So so you recently were looking at pre and postmenopausal women with IBS in a study, and you found that it didn't their symptoms did not um, decrease postmenopausal which I think some people thought that they would like if, if hormones are really driving it, then once you're kind of past that high hormone level in your life, that your symptoms are going to start to die down a little bit. Maybe if you still have them, they won't be as bad, but that's not really what you found. No, you know, I will say though, that it is a retrospective analysis yeah. of our prospective database. So we didn't have a huge number of postmenopausal women or men of comparable age because we tend to study a younger population, but it okay. showed that women, postmenopausal women with IBS will report a higher severity of their IBS symptoms than premenopausal women. But if you looked at comparably aged men, there wasn't really a difference um, in the men that were younger or older with their IBS. Now, this is not really an old population per se. And I use old as I get older, you know, what I consider old, it gets higher and higher. I know. Uh, but, <laughs> so right now we're, we're now we're in an NIH grant. We're trying to really study the differences and look at hormone levels. We're doing ovulation kits. Do we really understand really? what cycle they're in? Uh, so now we'll probably try to get that data uh, more, but I will tell you that the perimenopausal state, which can vary for women and, and Margaret right. Heikamper did a study on this they are the most symptomatic, whether you're looking at GI symptoms or you're looking at other symptoms, just probably because there's a lot of fluctuation and hormone levels, but that is the time I think that women are probably the most symptomatic. And then when they get more in a more stable postmenopausal state, it probably, it's definitely probably going to be less. And I think she showed that in in her study, Uh, but that's what the, the, our grant is like, why is it that premenopausal women with a high estrogen 
that they are more prone to getting these pain, chronic pain disorders. Right. But then when you are in a low estrogen state, that you can have greater symptoms. And that's where we're trying to study that more from the brain gut microbiome. Right. And what I've learned a lot is that estrogen has a lot of different functions mm. and they probably have different functions also at different times of your life. Right. Puberty, pregnancy, postmenopausal. So there's diff- there's different because it's all about survival. Sure. You know, sure. and so estrogen can have a stimulatory effect. It could increase your arousal. It's probably right. part of the reason why women may be more prone to certain conditions, including pain conditions mm-hmm. um, that are associated with hyperarousal. Uh, but it also has an inhibitory effect. It can actually increase the opioid system, endogenous opioids. Uh, so it also has a protective nature that probably comes into play during pregnancy and preparing for for delivery. delivery. Yeah. Uh, and it also works on the serotonin system, which also has a cortical inhibitory effect. So you have these kind of dual purposes or multiple purposes. What we're hypothesizing is that in a low estrogen state, like postmenopausal or right before menses, where women have a lot of symptoms, mm-hmm. is that you have an imbalance. So you have more of this stimulatory effect and less of the inhibitory effect. And that's why at the end, um, you will have more of a prone to have more symptoms, but we're not, we're, we're studying that right now. That's our, that's our hypothesis. That is so interesting. So do you think, I mean, and clearly this is conjecture, but do you think that at some point we might, as we better understand this and the role of, of the hormones, um, be able to kind of use hormone therapy to treat these conditions? Yeah. Well, that's always, well, you know, Margaret Heikamper did a study some years ago where she tracked menstrual cycle and found that healthy women and women with IBS right before menses, when your estrogen and progesterone are falling, that's Mm -hmm. that fluctuation. So it's not the steady state. It's the, it's the change. It's the withdrawal that they'll have more symptoms, both healthy women and women with IBS, but women with IBS will report a higher intensity of the symptoms. Um, and she also looked at women that were on birth control, particularly right. more the monophasic. So you're not having, you're not uh, reproducing yep. the fluctuations and they tended to have less symptoms uh, yeah, with GI symptoms. So sometimes I think about using that because they do that for pelvic pain syndromes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah. an option, but I don't think no one's ever really studied that in a controlled manner. Right. The question in, in postmenopausal women, cause you don't necessarily want to give right. them estrogen. Right. But you know, what's interesting with us studying the brain gut microbiome, and there's really not that much known about estrogen and the estrogen metabolites in the, in the gut, but in, in postmenopausal states, the diversity of the bacteria in the gut, the microbiome is decreased and the Mm -hmm. microbiome, the bacteria do have to, they receive these conjugated, you know, estrogen metabolites that they have to deconjugate and then they get reabsorbed in the system. And it's possible that in postmenopausal women, they don't, they're, they're, the bacteria that deconjugate and the enzymes are different and they don't deconjugate the estrogen metabolites and they're not much reabsorption. What I don't know is if you give them phytoestrogens or you give some other considered safe type right. of microbiome targeted treatment, could you be able to reabsorb these, you know, deconjugated estrogens? I don't know if there's going to be some yeah. novel, safe type of, um, interventions that are more creative that right. will help women you know, right. with, with symptoms. Gosh, that would sure be nice. I think, yeah. I mean, 
personally in the perimenopause phase that I'm in, I definitely see like, for some reason, my symptoms are, are, are they're a little bit more heightened than they were they have to be. five, five to six years ago. Um, yeah. So I, I was kind of thinking, oh, maybe they'll get better once I kind of reach that menopause finish oh. line, but but Maybe I think not. they will. I, I, <laughs> it, it, it's got to be. I mean, when you're going through these fluctuations yes, where the body's going yes. to get destabilized, it's harder to, to engage these protective mechanisms. I still yeah. remember a colleague of mine, a friend of mine who is a neurologist who studies migraine and people say, oh, can't eat chocolate. He says, it's not so much what you eat. It's when you you change your diet a lot. Right. Yeah. So maybe, yeah. maybe a little low steady state of chocolates. Okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe the whole box isn't good. Not you know, so it, yeah. it's really about stability, right? Equilibrium state. Honestly, I mean, between night sweats and hot flashes and mood swings, and I need all the chocolate I can get. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so let's, let's move over now from sex differences to the role of trauma and adverse childhood, um, effects on these conditions. I know another area that you've done some work in, and I'm wondering, um, you know, what began, what was the kind of trigger for you to begin looking at this as a correlation to these conditions? We we've heard, I think a lot of people have seen the Ted talks in recent years about the role of trauma on like heart disease and other chronic illnesses. But personally, I had not heard about its effect on GI symptoms and GI illnesses. So what was it that brought you to this? Well, I was very aware of, uh, Doug Drossman's, uh, studies and others where they looked at more abuse in the uh, GI population, not just in IBS, but also in organic disease or quote, organic disease, like inflammatory bowel disease. But the other area that we study in our center is not just sex difference, but the role of stress. Hmm. And that's like the name of our center. And I, when I'm taking care of these patients, I really knew that stress played a large role in increasing the risk and also triggering the symptoms. So we said it, that's why I studied the cortisol and, you know, a lot of the, the mm-hmm, stress mm-hmm. response system. So that's part of the reason, but I wanted to expand it more out of abuse, but also into other early adverse life events in general, because there's, right. there's a range of them. Right. So I just got interested and they, they were, there was research that they were doing more and more studies using questionnaires. You didn't have to do mm-hmm. interviews. And there were large scale studies looking at adverse childhood experiences in the United States. It really started the Kaiser population showing links to cardiovascular disease and obesity and depression and substance abuse and lung disease. But they, it's interesting. They never studied GI disease. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I've yeah. used different questionnaires uh, to study early adverse life events. And a lot of what I've looked at also is animal models too. And that's helped the pathophysiology research I've been doing. But I do think it's really important. It's 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 prevalent now. Main, I mean, we many people. This is the point that I think is important. Many people had, have adverse childhood experiences. If you look right. at the that ACE questionnaire that they use, it's sixty percent of the general population. So it's more of the exception than the rule where you're right. going to develop chronic illness. It just in, it could potentially increase your risk for getting it. Doesn't mean that you're going to get it. Right. Uh, but it increases that risk. Um, so there's other factors I think that, that are involved, but it's, it's so it's prevalent. And what I think is important about it is it, it, it shapes who a person is, it shapes experiences and it, sh- it shapes the responses. 
And and the way I think about it, and I've had long talks with Doug about this, I think the most challenging part, I I think, and there's many challenging parts of having IBS and other disorders of gut-brain interaction, but as a patient, it's the unpredictability of the symptoms. You never know when it's going to come. Sometimes there's patterns, but so the patient or the person as a protective mechanism has to always be on alert. And this is where some of that anticipation or even anticipatory anxiety comes. And I think it gets you in the same contextual situation as going through these adversities where it isn't something you did. You're almost, I don't want to use the term victim, but you know, the perpetrator had that or, or whatever event happened, it could be, you know, death of a parent that that's nobody's fault. You know, they could have had a certain illness. Um, but it wasn't something that you really had control over. Yeah. Yeah. And then same with the, when you have dealing with these diseases, you, that unpredictable symptoms and severe some, you don't feel like you have good control over them. Mm -hmm. So sometimes that same emotional response, that stress response comes out, uh, that maybe, is similar to what you've experienced when you were younger or in, or even as a younger adult. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, for a lot of us with trauma histories, there is a lot of unpredictability or there was in those situations and you were kind of walking on eggshells or you just didn't know when something was going to happen. And I think that's very much a a similar situation with chronic illness and, and IBS in particular, and that it can be a feeling of helplessness and, And, you know, if the symptoms are very severe and they're not managed well, that can really then drive that depression and anxiety too, um, which we know then drives the symptoms. So it's just kind of this like wheel that you feel like you can't get off of. And it's, it can be very frustrating. It's overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. I wonder though. Oh, go ahead. Joanna, I just want to interrupt and and I'm doing a little plug for you, but it's, it's really relevant. Um, Is that. Because patients really don't really understand why they're having these symptoms. Yes. I think your book, you know, Gut Feelings, Disorders of Gut-Brain Interaction with Doug is very helpful. And I, I would suggest it to a lot of patients because it goes, because, you know, the, the physician and the healthcare provider, they only have a limited time and you can give them some Absolutely. resources, Yeah. but it's yeah. nice to have it in one place where you're explaining why people have these symptoms. What's the patient experience? Right. How, you know, how do you explain these things? Uh, it's it validates, it's hopeful. And just having that education is really important because then you can feel a little more equipped to yes. proceed and, and, and learn how to manage your, your symptoms better. It's, it gives them some empowerment. Yeah. Thank you. I, I agree. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering, what do you think about? Cause I, I mean, you, you touch on it a little bit, like it's doctors have limited time with patients and you, you are gastroenterologist, not psychologists. And this can be really touchy for a lot of patients who maybe haven't dealt with trauma or grief issues and yet they're driving their symptoms and they don't really make that correlation. So how do you kind of help guide your patients and kind of understanding the role that their past trauma or grief could be having on their health currently in a way that that they'll accept and then be able to move to some really productive management? Yeah, it's a good question. I do think it takes more time Yeah, and you may not do it on your first visit because the patient has to feel comfortable. 
Um, also, you have to give a environment and a relationship uh, where they feel comfortable. Right. I never, I almost never directly ask about it. I probably never yeah. do. But what I do is I'm really just trying to get the story of the patient. So I'm just, you know, I like things like, you know, have you ever had GI symptoms as a, you know, in childhood? Uh, you know, when did they have, when did they occur, even if they were intermittent? Um, yeah. When did you, you know, develop the symptoms when they flare? So I, I take these kind of milestone time points. And then I tried to figure out what was going on around that time that could have contributed for them to get symptoms. And it may be early adverse life events. It may be an infection. Um, right. So sometimes I'll just broadly ask about that. I, um, I don't ever really say where to use abuse or, you know, I might say stressful uh, situations. I try to be sensitive to how I'm asking it, but I really want the patient to relay that to me. So I don't act directly. I just make it open to start that discussion. And yes. if they start bringing something up, I'll start like, you know, maybe asking questions to, you know, elaborate, have them elaborate a little bit more, but that's yeah. really how I do it more. And then okay. when I, what's interesting is sometimes after we finish and I start relaying back to them why they had symptoms, putting the story together and from a physiologic and symptom perspective, then they may bring up something that triggers them to say, oh, you know, I, I, this may be important, but that's after we've engaged in conversation about the condition. Right. So right. I, it may just come at that time. And I, but I, what I always say is, uh, which I learned the hard way, if you're going to ask about this, you have to be prepared to know when you get the information, what are you going to do with that information? Yeah, absolutely. Because that's, that's pretty sacred information for a patient to reveal. So you need to be prepared to know how to handle that. And that's a really good point. And, I wonder, and, and not ask if you do, they look uncomfortable, like, or, yeah. you know, like they don't have to say, um, you know, because you want them to be feel ready. Right. Right. I feel like this is um, just an, a plug for the use of narrative history taking. I think that can be so helpful with just kind of like guiding the patient, like you just said, like asking about infection, asking about GI illnesses in childhood, and just kind of letting them just kind of tell the story. And before long, you might see clues that can kind of reveal things that they didn't even realize. So I think yeah. that's really... I love that whole narrative history taking. I think that's been really beneficial for me as a patient. And I've seen Doug utilize it so well um, in his management of patients. Yeah, agreed. Um, what do you think about trauma-informed care, knowing that um, uh, a lot of patients, well, I guess um, patients with IBS, it's been hypothesized in some recent studies that um, they're four times more likely to have a a history of childhood sexual abuse or trauma. Um, and so knowing that they're, they're more um, common than other patients, how, what kinds of things can you do to, to make sure that your care is trauma informed? And the reason I ask is because I think in GI, there's not been a lot of intentional thought around some of the procedures and things that are just commonplace in a diagnostic workup. Um, that could be triggering for patients who have this kind of history. And it's, it just can be very, um, um, it can set patients off if there's not some thought behind why these, even a digital rectal exam is being done or things like that. So 
Do you have any advice on trauma-informed care in GI? Uh, I don't know if this is answering the question, but I do think it's just good uh, that when you hear information, first of all, you don't probe too much. You have to be very sensitive to picking up the nonverbal cues or verbal you know, uh, feedback from the patient and just making it comfortable for them. Uh, being supportive when you hear about it and not being judgmental, just taking in that information. I think it's also really important to determine whether or not they have had counseling about it. If they've addressed it, do they feel like they would like to, because you may want to refer them to somebody if they feel like it's playing a role or it's impacting the way they're responding um, or managing or how they, their perception or the quality of life and giving some resources for that, I think are helpful. I definitely think for rectal exam or something that's more uh, sensitive, an intimate part of the body, you know, like at UCLA, they ask us to ask patients for chaperones that are trained to be present. Um, And then I always explain exactly what I'm going to do. And so they know exactly uh, what I'm, how I'm going to examine them. And I I definitely think we should be sensitive to younger women that may never have experienced that. Um, So I always do that. And if they're not comfortable doing that. I think that's fine. Um, I just, sure. I, you know, I just, yeah. I don't think it's good to push anybody into something they're uncomfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Okay. So wrapping up and, you know, you're kind of in the center of a lot of research in IBS overall, what are you excited about in terms of research that's being done and And then more importantly, I'm curious what you think about um, the role of mast cells in IBS. We're hearing a lot about the potential influence of that. And what are your thoughts on that? There's so much research going on right now and in in all different areas. And I think the important part about research is recognizing there are certain mechanisms that might be relevant to one group of patients with IBS and other mechanisms that are Uh, more relevant to another population, even though they all have uh, shared symptoms, but that it's important to remember that the body works together in concert. And even talking about mast cells, mast cells are not going to exist by themselves. And what the way I think about from more a holistic standpoint is that there's, you know, a dysregulation in a lot of our, uh, adaptive systems like the cardiovascular, the immune system, behavioral GI tract, and they, they, if they get disturbed or get dysregulated, it could affect people in different ways. So there are some patients where they have more of an enhanced immune response. It's not inflammatory bowel disease, but it, and and mast cell is going to be one of those, whether it's really responding to foods or just having mast cell. Now, the question we always have is what's the relevance is that, that they're having some increased immune activation, but is that actually playing a role in their symptoms? That's really what the key is. But we do know that there's a greater autonomic dysregulation with greater sympathetic drive, the fight or flight, less of the vagal or parasympathetic. And the vagal system is important in reducing pain and reducing inflammation. So that probably is linked to that. Uh, So I do think that I always just think of the body and any of these conditions as an orchestrated, it's an orchestra, right? right? So the mast cells may be violins, but it doesn't mean they don't interact with the other aspects of the, of the human body. And, and it may be one way at one time and a different way at another time. And it's really the body just trying to respond for survival purposes. Right. Right. 
Yeah, you know, there's probably a benefit for enhancing the immune, res- uh, the mast cell or immune response. You just yeah. wanted to go back to the baseline, but maybe it can't go back to the baseline. Right. Right. What about um, practice pearls? Do you have a practice pearl for providers who are seeing patients with IBS and then also a tip for patients who have IBS? It's probably good for both people to think about what the other person is thinking to and, and understanding yeah. each other's perspectives. Right. I think for healthcare providers, even though you have a certain period of time, it's always better, I think, to start with what brought the patient in, what is very important for them to get out of this visit so that you're really focusing on what's important to the patient and start with open-ended questions. Uh, And then you start recognizing what's important to the patient, what's the bothersome aspect of it. And then you kind of start honing into more yes or no questions while you're trying to figure it out. Uh, That's what I would say from the history taking and that there's a lot of literature out there to help guide what's the you know, best diagnostic approach. You don't have to exclude every disease before you make the diagnosis. And there's a lot of treatments out there and not everybody responds the same way. I do think it's important for healthcare providers to tell patients that they're, they're giving certain treatments for treating certain symptoms so that the patient is understanding why they're taking, how they judge if it's working or not. Right. Um, I think for a patient, the more informed they are, I think the better, but you know, you can read so much on the internet and then they think they have this or that. Yes. Um, and so that that's, um, you know, I, I think it's good for them to know the lingo and yeah. to ask questions uh, because sometimes uh, healthcare providers don't, you know, get of it in a little bit more of a um, user-friendly way of understanding it. Right. So, but I, th- I would say preparation is really important. Yeah, I agree with you. I I encourage patients to try and be as prepared as possible, really, because there's such limited time and you really want to be able to get your answers to your questions. So um, really being prepared, having a little list to go off of so you don't forget key points. Um, But I think also setting expectations is really important. So, you know, if, if the provider is asking, why are you here and what are your main concerns? And then the patient can kind of set some expectations for what they what the treatment's going to deliver or what the patient provider relationship is going to look like. It's going to be better for both parties. So this is all about the history. Yes. This, everything's about the history. So the patient has to be able to provide a good history yep. and the healthcare provider has to be a good listener. Yes. And the patient needs to be honest because <laughs> we see a lot of that too. So yeah. This has been so fun. Thank you, Dr. Chang, for sharing your hour with us. If you have any questions for Dr. Chang, please email me. We'll pass them along and try to get some answers for you. Don't forget to join us on Tuesday, February 8th at 7 p.m. Eastern time, where Dr. Chang will be our guest for a live Twitter chat on the Tuesday night IBS page on Twitter. So please join us for that. She'll be answering questions live and we're gonna have uh, about 40 minutes of her time on Tuesday, February 8th. So we'll see you then. Please um, join us again next month for another guest expert and a new topic. Until next time, everyone take good care. Bye now. Bye. Join us again next month for another episode of Tuesday Night IBS, and be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag Tuesday Night IBS. 
We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time with our monthly guest and encourage you to join in the conversation. In addition, check out our page on Facebook at Tuesday Night IBS and find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversation about these important topics. See you next month.